Today we're going to talk about How Do You Sleep from John Lennon's Imagine album. In this episode, we're going to address the history behind the song, the motivations of its co-authors, John, Alan Klein, and Yoko, the way the song was instrumental in creating the insidious, dehumanizing narrative that Paul is somehow a less creative or less authentic artist than Yoko or John, we'll address how the old guard basically failed to look critically at any of this, and we'll also touch on John's mental state at the time, and possibly what some of his objectives might have been. And in episode two, we discuss George Harrison's role in the song and try to unpack some of George's issues with Paul and John that he articulated over the years using support from a wide range of sources. And we're not going to sugarcoat anything. Mm -hmm. This song goes really hard on Paul, so we're going to go really hard on this song. Yeah, I feel like there's not much of a check and balance in the Beatles fandom when it comes to this song in particular. There's a lot of like, well, you know, it was deserved and it was just John being honest and real. Yeah. And the most sort of disturbing thing about it is that I assumed that the way people talk about this song would have evolved. Yeah. Since, you know, 1971. And it kind of hasn't like it's still the oh, no, Lennon estate. You know, they still sort of promote it as like a beautiful thing that deserves no... Yeah. criticism or analysis or anything and it, it seems like all the mainstream news outlets kind of go along with that like i've never mm-hmm. really seen anybody pick it apart at yeah. all so i'd like to make the case that this song is a blemish on what is generally an otherwise positive album mm-hmm. and it should be treated as such the same way that we now look at songs from the past that glorify violence or rape yeah there should be some accountability. Yeah. Um, I'm not against an angry breakup song, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nothing wrong with that. But this song was a blatant, explicit hit piece that's inflicted lifelong damage on Paul in terms of critical reception, in terms of how people talk about Paul in the media, Mm -hmm. in terms of how Beatle Bros and Jean Jackets discuss and write about Paul from this point forward Yeah, in actual Beatle books, not just John Lennon books, and and sometimes in Paul McCartney books as yeah. well. And then I'd also argue that it set a terrible precedent for the disrespect that Paul is often treated with. Because again, people are following in Lennon's footsteps because, you know, people are generally followers Mm-hmm. And John is looked at as like a cultural leader. So especially the big fans of John and the people who write Beatle books, who worship John, sort of just followed his lead and did whatever John said. Yeah. So all the all the nerds who write Beatle books and articles for 70s rock mags, all these guys who have been at the bottom of the pile their whole lives... Mm-hmm. At the time, just relished the opportunity to jump on a bandwagon and beat someone else up. This yeah. is my feeling. Because yeah. these guys don't empathize, right? They just suck up. Yeah. Like, no one's trying to break the cycle of bullying. They just want to get out from under the bottom of yeah. the pile, right? So yeah. if someone else is targeted, they're happy to just, you know, join the pile on and be Lenin's bitch boys. Yeah, like has minions or something. 
Yeah, because it's better to be the bully's minion than it is the object of the bully's wrath. Yeah. These guys all want to be John Lennon, so they just sort mm-hmm. of adopted what they thought was what Lennon thought about Paul and just regurgitated. Yeah. And they didn't even look between the lines, and they didn't even look at everything else that came after. It, they're not looking at anything. It's not. Yeah. They, they're not critical of Lennon because he's a yeah. god to them. So they just, right. again, if he says march, they march. I mean, I think it just boils down to that. Mm-hmm. And as John Lennon told Rolling Stone in 1970, his music is hopefully for workers and not for tarts and fags. It's really... just revolutionary you know i just think its concept is revolutionary and i i hope it's for workers and not for tarts and fags so he's telegraphing it very explicitly like women who are gross and fucking pussies can like paul but if you're a real bro then you're on team lennon or team john and yoko remember yeah because he can't even stand alone Right. Yeah. He's got to attach his name to his pit bull. Yeah. So that's how it was. And fundamentally, all these guys are cowards. So they basically just fell in line. Mm hmm. And then I think because Imagine is the most successful and well recognized song of John's solo career, and the Imagine LP is the most iconic period for John, it just sort of became sacrosanct in music or like in classic rock. Rolling Stone type culture, especially after he was shot and people realized they weren't getting any more albums out of him. Mm-hmm. The Imagine LP has been elevated to some untouchable status. You're, you're not allowed to deconstruct it at all. Right. They can't. Nobody can touch it. But it's like it's not an untouchable album at all. It's yeah. just an album. Right. Right. John Lennon is not a god. He's just a dude. Mm-hmm. And this is a good album. For sure, but I don't even think it's John's best album. So the point is, like, we don't have to swallow the Imagine album wholesale. Yeah. We just don't. It's okay to discuss art in a nuanced way, and that includes John Lennon's art, even though he's dead. Mm-hmm. And John chose to put this song in an album, and he therefore chose to show his ass. So. Uh. We get to look at it, and we get to talk about it. So if we're going to treat him (laughs) like a real artist and a real man, rather than just some bullshit rock icon, then we need to be real about this stuff. Yes, we do. I kind of want to talk about how critics and the fandom, and even to this day Yoko, still applaud it for being raw and honest. And these, to me, are usually the same people who think that Paul needed to be quote-unquote put in his place yeah for stealing leadership from john and all this other stuff so nearly every time i see a conversation online about it someone also has to chime in with like but the music itself sounds so groovy i love george's slide man and john's tirade is just like chalked up to him being just like so real and so honest man well, those are those are two different things. It's like if you're the one argument is like, well, he was just being real. Mm-hmm. That's stupid because right. you know, I mean, I have lots of terrible real feelings too. It's like yeah. all of your garbage feelings 
<laughs> you know, like your your pettiness and your jealousy and like yeah. your prejudices and like all. I mean, everybody has some nasty things inside them. And just because you feel them doesn't mean they're awesome <laughs> or they're beautiful. It doesn't mean they need to be aired to the entire world. Yeah, like sometimes you should be ashamed of your feelings. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, or like... You know, keep them to your fucking self. Mm-hmm. You don't have to air them, especially if they right. have, like, tangible effects on other people that are harmful. Like, right. grow up and be, fucking be responsible. Yeah, I don't think John was unaware of the fact that he had a great deal of influence. Like, a staggering amount of influence in... Right. Like, so he had it, to know on some level that this was going to really inflict a lot of damage onto Paul, at least in his critical reputation. Well, all of Yoko's interviews from this, you know, from like 1969 forward are about how like the artists are responsible for their role in society and all this sort of stuff. It's like, that's why she's constantly talking about how like they have to do bed-ins and shit like that because John as a Beatle has an obligation to use his, you know, like he's, he should be using his celebrity to end the war in Vietnam. So it's like, if you're acknowledging that you have cachet as a celebrity, it obviously you know that it goes both ways. Yeah, you're you cognizant have, of that. <laughs> right. So you have the power to have a good influence, and you also have the power to be destructive and to hurt people on the other end. Yeah. So it's, it's 100% conscious. It's calculated. It, it's, it's calculated because it's written, it's recorded, it's put on the album, the lyrics are printed. Yeah, at that point, it's beyond the initial catharsis, okay? Like, this is you deliberately putting a message out. If you're feeling an uncontrollable emotion, then break a vase or something. You know, it's like, yeah, a lamp. Write a nasty letter and then crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just like, or rant about it. And then... To the point that it's like, just listen to the music. The music is really cool, man. It's Mm. like, if your argument is, well, yes, the words are poisonous to John and to all of his personal relationships and corrosive to society, and it completely undermines the message of imagine, but it has a good beat, then we're done. Right. That's a a non-fucking starter. We're not, I'm, I'm not even having a conversation with you. You know, a lot of men make movies where it's like, Women get brutalized and raped and murdered and whatever to just to sort of further the the man's journey in some way. Right. Like that type of thing. Yeah. It's like, Ugh. oh, well, it's part of John's journey. It's like, well, fuck John's journey. I don't care. He's right. Why should he be allowed to brutalize Paul to fucking work through his feelings? That's to me, that's right. what that sounds like. Yeah, there. it's total, like, well, the, the end justified the means kind of logic, but the end doesn't justify the means. And also, what you're saying is that John is important and Paul is not. Like, right. Like, John's fucking emotions that he's trying to work through are more important than Paul's actual life and career and self-esteem and, like, the way that he has talked about from this point forward for the rest of his life that he has to read thank you very much and Mm -hmm. see and hear everywhere he goes and he's constantly fighting this current of nastiness for the rest of his life when he's just trying to be an artist yeah so i'm gonna argue that because of its indelibility and its long-reaching effects even today Mm -hmm. this song is a cancer and it easily ranks amongst the worst things that John Lennon ever did. 
Agreed. Definitely the worst song he ever did in terms of the damage it did to his relationship with Paul, his relationship with George, George's relationship with Paul, Paul's critical reception, Paul's self-confidence, and also just in terms of poisoning the culture with what we now call toxic masculinity. Mm. Um, First of all, something I want to push back on is this idea that John and Yoko were impeccably righteous in this period. Yeah. I see this a lot, and I just want to examine that for a bit. So, for sure, they were involved in the peace movement of the era protesting the Vietnam War and various other causes. That's legit and well-documented. And Mm -hmm. I get that to a certain demographic, that's ultimately all that matters. Yeah. Like, that is all they care about. But writing Imagine and supporting causes on the radical left doesn't automatically free pass all of their behavior. Mm -hmm. And nobody pushes back on it, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Yes. (laughs) Um, In 1970 and 71, they publicly said shitty things about Linda and degraded her art. They diminished and degraded John's relationships with the other Beatles as fag stuff repeatedly, using those words. And they degraded Paul's enthusiastic devotion to fatherhood and his young family. And they said this stuff to magazines like Rolling Stone, things read by impressionable young men who grew up idolizing John Lennon. So as a hugely admired figure in popular culture, John was damaging with this toxic masculinity stuff in exactly the opposite way that the Beatles were massively progressive with their non-toxic, non-homophobic, egalitarian love messaging. Yeah, it's like he tore that down and destroyed it retroactively mm-hmm. with this campaign. And yet he is still marketed as and still worshipped as like this great guru of love and counterculture values. You know, after the breakup, he tried very hard to to construct a new image, which is not unusual. Like a lot of people do that after a terrible, after a divorce, especially of like a long 10 year relationship. And he's, I mean, he's got a worldwide fame in that identity. So yeah, he, he had to work very hard to reinvent himself. You know, that's a big, mm-hmm. it's a big image to shake off. Right. And, and for whatever reason, he desperately needed to do it and was willing to go to extreme lengths to, shake off that beetle image or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't like the way that it's framed as like the post Beatles, John Lennon, that's his true self and that's his superior self because in the shaking off of the Beatles, he, he threw out with the bathwater a lot of the, best things that he'd ever done and contributed to the culture, right? Yeah. Like, that sort of loving, non-toxic thing that the Beatles brought into the world because of his, you know, hurt and heartbreak and insecurity and all that sort of stuff, he rejected it at that point. Yeah. And, like, as he was dumping Paul out of his life or out of his heart or whatever the fuck he was doing he threw out a lot of other good things Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of how he expressed it was in very aggressive, homophobic ways. Mm-hmm. And so, look, you know, he is just a person and he makes mistakes. And I'm sensitive to the fact that, like, he went through a terrible breakup and people act crazy when they go through a breakup, you know? Yeah, We all exactly. know that. I mean, we yeah. all know that <laughs> just people lose their minds sometimes. So I yeah. get that. But, like, it doesn't mean that we have to celebrate the gross stuff that he did other than making John feel better about himself or like other than distancing himself from Paul. What was the point of all that? Yeah. Was it to like market John differently and to make him more macho and more appealing to young men, you know, like the, whatever that sort of ISIS demographic it's like the (laughs) young angry men between 16 and 30 that's the demographic he went over and that's still the demographic that he has hold over that became his new thing he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna use machismo to attract those guys and like because he that's where he has a that's his stronghold to begin with right like Mm -hmm. that was kind of his fan base already yeah so he just doubled down on it Mm-hmm. He's like, fuck all the women and the pussies who like, you know, I don't need you anyway. I mean, it didn't destroy Paul's fan base because Paul still has a very like loving and enthusiastic fan base and always did. And he never lost them. Yeah. And I think true. it's like, you know, it's like part of what was so frustrating to John is like, well, John, like a lot of Paul's fan base is women and they don't care that you say like that he's a pussy because he's carrying his babies around. It's like that's not right. a, that doesn't uh, <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't work turn on us. women off. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, we like that. That's cool. That's, that's fallen on deaf ears. I mean, to the guys over at Cream and whatever who are all yeah. jerking each other off at the typewriter, that <laughs> means something. But to us, it doesn't mean shit. And and plus, it's like Paul's an amazing artist. So also, I don't care what names you're calling him or whatever. I like his music. Right. This is why his music continued and has continued to be successful. But it's, but in terms of like turning the conversation, the, the, you know, the sort of insular sort of rock journalism conversation, that conversation was, was permanently turned because those guys write for each other. They're talking to themselves. They're not even talking to us. I mean, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they exist in, like, this weird vacuum. Yes! It's an echo chamber to them. That's all it is. That's, ex- yes! They, 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 yeah. It's just a bunch of nerds writing books for each other to read and jerk off to. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? You are not wrong! <laughs> it's, like- it's just... <laughs> You know, when you, like, I'm laughing because that's what it really is. And when you look at it for what it is, it's just ridiculous on its face. It is ridiculous. And that's why I'm laughing. In 1970, Paul found a new identity as a father. Gets very clearly what gives him life at this time. Yes. talking about his kids all the time, featuring them on his album, taking them on tour, all that sort of stuff. Like, clearly his jam is family, right? Yep. And... One horrible thing they did 
I'm going to single out Yoko a little bit for this. One thing that she did was denigrate Paul's new identity as a family man. Here's Paul's official description of his debut album from the McCartney press release. One of the questions is, are you able to describe the texture or the feel of the album in a few words? Home, family, love. Aww. Which I, I love. <laughs> that sounds pretty accurate, don't you think? Yeah, and I love right. it. And so here's Yoko's two cents from London Remembers. This is what she has to say about the McCartney LP. He certainly sold a record that hey. virtually didn't have any message in it. You know, it's one of those... Well, that's, people, you don't have to have a message in a record. So, I guess home, family, and love are bullshit concepts to Yoko. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I find it awfully convenient how in 1971, Paul is some kind of whipped weakling for being such a devoted father. Yet mm -hmm. in 1980, Yoko does a whole lot of drum beating about how progressive John Lennon is for spending time with his kid. Yeah. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. whereas yep. like 10 years before, Paul is inexplicably like some sort of tool of the system because he loves being a dad. Yeah. I guess because uh. he's not out in the streets protesting and instead he's like raising his children. Right. With his own fucking hands. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess whatever. But, but certainly, I mean, I've heard her say like even yesterday, you know, like five <laughs> minutes ago, she was like, John was so progressive and ahead of his time because in 1980, he stayed at home. Like, he quit his day job. Right. <laughs> to raise like Sean had, Lennon. Like, he ever had a day job. <laughs> yeah. But but somehow, Paul doing it ten years earlier made him a bitch, I guess. Which, like, I'm sorry, but how dare they? I Yes! <laughs> like, that's fucking temerity. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyway, and then here's Yoko from the St. Regis interview from September 1971. I don't think I have audio for this. So I'm going to have to read it. She said, mm. and so Klein thinks he'll give Paul two years Linda-wise, you know. <laughs> and John said, no, Paul treasures things like children, things like that. It will be longer. Things like children. Things like that. And this is in terms of like when, when John and Yoko are predicting that Paul is going to divorce Linda. Paul can't possibly love her. Here's a clip from the same interview, St. Regis Hotel, um, where Yoko's trying to build the case that Paul didn't want her to join the Beatles because he was sexist. Um, <laughs> earlier in that interview, Yoko had mentioned that during the Beatles recording sessions, Paul had gently suggested that perhaps she would be happier staying at home. Um, to, now, to the point that Paul was old-fashioned and carried many sexist views in the late 60s, that is certainly legit. Yeah. Even Paul will corroborate that. Mm -hmm. But the same can be said for all the Beatles. And yeah. I, I don't know that Paul was any worse than the others. You could make a strong case that Paul's embrace of fatherhood and the unique way that he's championed women throughout his career as a songwriter in his songwriting was very progressive. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that this whole narrative of Paul hated Yoko because he was sexist and didn't think women could be artists, even though he married a brilliant artist, was sort of built up by Yoko to counteract her portrayal as the villain of the Beatles breakup. Mm -hmm. Right? Because then it just puts the blame on somebody else. It's because, you know, Paul doesn't want to let a woman into the boys' club. Yeah. Yeah, is it right? It's like that's just a way of like blaming him for the fact that she was in a space that 
didn't allow for outsiders or people who weren't contributing to the music to be there. So here Paul is sharing advice with Yoko from Linda's OB. I tried to be friendly with that because, you know, I don't want to be just another thing to, you know, become into the family bit, but I tried to Mm. be the family as well in a way, you know. So, for instance, I told Paul, I said, Paul, please understand this. If Linda gets surprised, and filmmaking or something or photography because that's a bit you know we're going to be all proud it's going to be good for the Beatles it's going to be good for all of us and I would be proud of it because she's one of the family now the thing is so I was an artist I was working very hard until I met John please let me work you know and you obviously know that it's very difficult for me to work now the way it is and I'm suffocated please just you know have some kindness and let me work know and make it easy for me to work or help me you know we should all help each other and then the next day he came on saying you know that doctor said that you should really not be vegetarian acrobatic you should really start eating meat and all that you know linda was with the same doctor i said what both said uh you know you should eat uh, meat and, and all that uh, because i understand you're bleeding every day you know and he said uh, well, uh, you just told me that we should help each other, so I'm just giving an information. <laughs> but I didn't mean that he should give me a biological <laughs> information. Yeah. Help in the work. So, look, he's, you know, he didn't mean badly, but he really don't understand. He thinks women has to be like that. It's a little hard to follow Yoko's logic, but for whatever reason, she took offense to that. Maybe she felt like he was mansplaining nutrition to her or something but then again she says he didn't mean it badly he just thinks a woman has to be like that so i don't really know what she thinks that paul thinks a woman has to be like i guess healthy yeah i don't maybe she's saying that he's encouraging her to to take care of herself so she doesn't lose a baby or something i don't know yeah yeah either way i think she's reading like in that moment she's reading too much into paul giving kind of this paternalistic advice but then again, it does. You know, maybe he was being a mansplaining douche. Maybe he was. I don't know. I wasn't there. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it does <laughs> seem kind of like. Do you remember that that story that Hunter Davies told when they were in Portugal in like December of 1968? So on that trip, Paul and Linda bring Heather along, and they meet up with Hunter and his wife, and she's they have a daughter who is mm-hmm. um, Heather's age. Yep. So the, And then they also have a baby, and Hunter told us a story about, like, at one point, the baby picked up a knife, and Hunter grabbed it out of his hand, and Paul was like, you should let them explore. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> some, explore some, with sharp, dangerous objects. <laughs> exactly. He's like, that's, they have to learn that it's, that it's you know, that it can hurt them, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> it was very, like, Paul's already, you know an expert on fatherhood right Right. (laughs) like because he's been like like surrogate dad to this eight-year-old girl or however you know right for a couple months he's already got fatherhood all figured out and he's ready to give hunter advice on it you know (laughs) so it's like that does kind of track the like 
I mean, to me, it's kind of sweet and funny because it's like that's the enthusiasm of new parents. And he technically yeah. he, was a, he was an expectant parent at that time because I think Linda, they knew she was pregnant or they found yeah. out like right before that trip or something. Mm-hmm. So he's already getting excited, to, you know, like yeah. <laughs> and like that's how new parents are or should be how they are, you know, in a best case yeah. scenario where you actually care about your kids and you get excited about them and you're already, you know, master planning all of how you're going to raise them and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it does kind of fit the profile of Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that John and Yoko both consider themselves shitty parents. Yeah. At, at this time. Yeah, yeah. They both have children from their last marriage who are pretty estranged. much... Estranged. Estranged, yeah. Both of them have sort of bad self-image when it comes to themselves being parents and I think it was one of the things that bonded them honestly mm-hmm. so I'm saying so because of that it's 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 possible that Yoko's a little oversensitive to all this yeah and maybe she's projecting a little bit onto Paul that's not there and the other thing is, is like during that particular rant of hers where she's saying just let me work please let me work yeah. What the fuck is she talking about? Why is she asking Paul to allow her to work? Earlier in the interview, she was complaining that she was so caught up in John or she was with John all the time that her own work was suffering, that she wasn't getting to do any of her own work. Yeah, and that's not you know, Paul's fault. Well, of course. Again, it's like the reason you're not getting any work done is because you're just sitting next to John 24-7. I, I do think this is her trying to build up a case that Paul is mm. sexist and that yeah. that's why there was a problem. Like, that's the only problem with Yoko being there all the time. Yeah. Like, everybody else didn't have a problem with it. Like, it was just, Yeah, it was just but Paul. It, you know, this building up of this stupid narrative that still exists to this day of, like, Paul is just super jealous of Yoko. Yoko really built that up really hard. It is a little bit of myth-making that is stuck because it's like, well, Paul's just a misogynistic douchebag who didn't want Yoko around because she was a woman. Yeah, because and, bros before hoes. Yeah. yeah. And, like, people believe that. Yeah. Well, I mean, in fairness, a <laughs> lot of guys think that way. So it's not far-fetched. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You I, know. Mean, I think that's why it's stuck, because it isn't far-fetched. It is believable yeah, because, enough. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the thing about Yoko is, like, it's like she's using feminists feminism to sort of get her away and to sort of shape the narrative in her favor Mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not it's true you know i mean again like i said if if the argument is that like paul was kind of a chauvinist in the 60s i mean uh, no argument but but that's not why he doesn't want yoko to be sitting next to john doing heroin with him while they're trying to make an album like it's ridiculous (laughs) And anybody who repeats that is ridiculous, too. Mm-hmm. That's just... Uh, uh, that's yeah. absurd. You live with straights who tell you... He said, you know, you live with straights. Yeah. So what? What's so criminal about that? You know, I like straights. You know, I quite like some straight people. I have straight babies. <laughs> what's your reaction to that audio my reaction to that initially is um just kind of like well yeah i have people in my life who don't do drugs that doesn't make me a square 
I mean, it's a really dumb accusation. Like, it what? is. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> I like how Paul sort of turns it into like, well, I'm a dad, dickhead. Right. Would you, you want me to have a bunch of junkies laying around the house? or? Right. Yeah, I can't have junkies over at my house. I have children. So uh, anyway, it's it's just like another layer of how children and, and family get dragged into this. I'd like to dismantle one of the biggest myths or lies that people fall back on when they discuss this song. Which is, uh, I often read things like, John Lennon is expressing years of pent-up resentment over creative differences. As if hmm. John is some kind of like drunk art teacher doling out free advice to Paul on his music or something. Like, we're supposed to take these <laughs> so-called criticisms seriously. You know? mm -hmm. Or that the other thing is that like, he secretly thought all these things for years. And was just politely holding his tongue and tolerating Paul while Paul was being outrageously successful in writing <laughs> hit after Timeless hit. <laughs> so sometimes this song is used to prop up the false, insulting narrative that the Lennon-McCartney split was at its heart about creative differences, which is code meaning Paul wrote Muzak and John wrote deep social commentary. Yeah. Or that... John always hated Paul and barely tolerated him. And <laughs> now that the ball and chain was finally loose, he was able to speak his mind. Thank God he dumped Paul and moved on to greener pastures. Uh, right. No, it was a temper tantrum. And even John acknowledged this. Like, there's never a point at any time where John defends it by saying, you know... I thought all these things about him creatively and I just was sharing my artistic opinions about his work. He, like, he never, ever says that. Yeah. He always says it was just like a moment of anger, you know, mm -hmm. or that he was responding to Ram. Those are his two defenses. <laughs> That's, that song is another thing like that letter. It's just a moment of anger, but I just put it down on paper. I'm also answering uh, Paul's last album, which mostly be because he didn't hand out a lyric sheet don't know what he was saying so this is a this is sort of a narrative just created by the beetle book writers or like the newspapers or whatever the same also the same narrative of like the people who don't like paul have just sort of perpetuated this dumb idea that like paul wasn't important to john <laughs> like wasn't you know the center of his fucking universe um he was just some guy that john worked with for a while and then forgot all about just forgot about him you know so first of all, even though John and Paul were at the time embroiled in a bitter divorce, Paul was not just a former business associate. Okay? Yeah. This is a quote from the Washington Post on October 9th, John's birthday, 1971. <laughs> I'm going to read it. Still, while the Lennon-McCartney tiff made for good press, even Lennon admitted to a Syracuse University audience on the date of Imagine's release that How Do You Sleep was, quote, an outburst. Things mm -hmm. are still the same between us. He was and still is my closest friend, except for Yoko, unquote. Wow. And here is John at the Mike Douglas show defending the song in February 1972, shortly after the album's release. Paul, Paul uh, personally doesn't feel as though I, I insulted him or anything because I had dinner with him last week. 
they were quite friends, happy. you know, and they were swearing at each other. If I can't, uh, if Nothing. I can't uh, have a fight with my best friend, I don't know who I can have a fight is, with. Is is he your best friend, Paul? So the takeaway there is that John utilized his credibility, his star power, his fame, his cultural status, and he spent that capital on a vicious, destructive attack on the person that he literally and sincerely calls his best friend. Hmm. Think about that. Like, yeah. that is absolutely pathological. Yeah, let that sink in for a moment. And John expected to continue to have a relationship with Paul afterwards. And yeah. did. Yeah. And did. Th this isn't like him, th them cutting things off. No. I mean, John wants a response. You know, like he wants Paul to write a song back to him. Mm-hmm. I think that he even gave a couple of interviews where he's like, I'm sure Paul will respond and and it'll be good. Like he's just like he can't let it go. He just wants this back and forth to continue. Yeah, that's, that hardly so, speaks of someone who's indifferent and doesn't care. And it's like, oh, well, I, I'm just washing my hands of this boring person I've tolerated for 12 years. Yeah, I think he's just out of control at this point. Like he's mm -hmm. he's he asks he's escalating he gets to a point where he just goes nuclear. Yeah. And he doesn't go nuclear because he's trying to end things. He goes nuclear because he just loses his shit. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard for him to provoke Paul because Paul keeps pulling back and, you know, yeah. Paul's trying not to engage with him in public. Right. And he's trying to push Paul over the edge because he wants a response because that's how children operate mm -hmm. even negative attention like even if i'm hurting you and i'm upsetting you and you're reacting to me at least you care and you're mm -hmm. you know i know that you are still emotionally involved with me in some way so he's being ruled by his emotions and unfortunately he was being enabled by people who were actively encouraging his worst impulses mm -hmm. we know that klein and yoko were actually co-writing the song with him John mentions it several times in public. These people are, are provoking <laughs> this is like emotionally unstable artist to engage in destructive behavior. And that's exploitative. Yeah. And no one even talks about that except Paul. Yeah. Who I know that, again, the jean jackets are going to say that that's just, you know, of course Paul brings it up because it's against him. But also, it's like sometimes it really does come across like Paul is the only one who gives a shit about John. Mm-hmm. And his mental state, you know? Yeah. And his overall well-being. Right. Like, everybody talks about how Paul was able to, to talk John down or keep him in line. And after the breakup, John, it could be because he's paranoid and insecure, and he's convinced that, like, you know, Paul never loved him or whatever. So after the breakup, John's like, Paul was muzzling me, you know, like Paul was keeping him in a cage or something. And right. then the books frame it like Paul was so square and lame by moderating John's worst instincts. But like, right. how beneficial was it for John to be surrounded by enablers who tell him that his worst impulses are beautiful? Yeah simply because he feels them like he ended up with this disgusting song on his what most people consider his best album yeah 
For what? Like, right. maybe Paul wasn't trying to oppress John so much as he was just trying to, like, help this unstable person regulate his more manic, self-destructive, or harmful behavior. And I read an article the other day, well, if they'd had psychiatrists, we wouldn't have had, uh, you know, Gauguin's great pictures, you know, and these fucking bastards, you know, they're just sucking us to death. Uh, that's all, but all we can do is do it like fucking circus animals. I resent being an artist. Absolutely. It always looked to me as an outside observer, like um, in this period, John kind of fell in with a bad crowd of sorts, like a whole group of sycophants who knew they could exploit his fame and his star power and kind of leverage themselves as being aligned with him. I also want to point out that all of these people, by the way, have a personal grudge against Paul because Paul has rejected all of them. Yes. Like we know how badly Alan Klein wanted Paul. Oh, yeah. We know, like, the crazy lengths that he went to try to rope Paul in, get him to sign, etc. Down to, like, uh, getting the other Beatles to try to set a, a, a trap. trap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he tried and, like, to literally ensnare him. Yeah, he's tried bullying. He tried trickery. You know, whatever he could do. And Paul just said no over and over again. Right. And then we know that Phil Spector, he's got a chip on his shoulder because when he added that corny fucking chorus <laughs> to Long and Winding Road, Paul sent him a letter that was like, get your hands off my shit, Spector, and don't ever touch any of my music again. Right. Yeah. So Spector hates Paul. Of course. Now yeah. Spector has a vendetta because he's like, how dare you? But I'm the great Phil Spector. And Paul's like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you schmaltzed don't touch up my music. You schmaltzed up my song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, how dare you? Like, don't touch my music without my say-so. Right. Ugh. Which he has every right. That's what I'm saying. It's like, all these people are disrespecting him. And Paul's like, you can all go suck a dick. Right. <sighs> Again, that's what's frustrating about the Beatle books. It's like, nobody frames it. Like, Paul is the goose who's laying the fucking golden eggs. That's why they're all chasing him. Mm-hmm. And he's not having any of their bullshit. Right. So they're all pissed off about it. And then Yoko... <laughs> We're not going to dig into that right now, but let's just say that Yoko approached Paul first yep. before she approached John. I feel like the whole lot of them, John especially, once Paul made it clear that he was moving on and didn't need any of these people, they all kind of made it their point to be like, well, we didn't need him anyway because he's not talented at all and he's such a shallow airhead and he writes all these corny granny mm -hmm. songs and he's like a dad with children and gross... So they're all, after all, were desperately pursuing Paul and wanted, you know, a, wanted a piece of him. And he <laughs> said, fuck off to all of you. Now, all of a sudden, they're all like, well, nobody likes him anyway. <laughs> Spectre's like, who wants to make a Paul album? It's like, bitch, you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you tried. And then he was like, no, <laughs> now you got something to prove. <laughs> <laughs> it's so pathetic. Yeah. They're just all bending over backwards to be like, oh, we don't even like Paul. Right. <laughs> stupid. So stupid. <sighs> so, but like, if, for example, even John's parody with the pig. Oh, yeah. Okay, in the Imagine album cover, it's like, so John is dressed like in slacks and a sweater vest, right? <laughs> Those glasses. Like, he looks like he just came out from behind his typewriter after composing an angry response <laughs> to a bad review. Like, he's writing a Melody Maker letter. Like, <laughs> like, so what exactly are you lampooning, John? 
Like, right. and all the bros are like high five and like, oh, look at John, he like made fun of Paul. But it's like, what? <laughs> what's he? I'm sorry, what's the punchline? Like, are you bragging about being some erudite fucking art school rock god who can't, who doesn't get his hands <laughs> dirty? Like, it's just that one fell what? flat to me. I didn't get where that yeah. was supposed to come. It just looks so thirsty to me. It is. Right? It's, it's super like, thirsty. God, you're like fucking, you're redoing his album cover? Like, bro, come on. It's very transparent to me and it's kind of like really sad and pathetic but everyone's like yeah look at john her. <laughs> yes. i know the, the beetle bros are like sick burn dude and i'm like oh okay we'll break down the burn to me i don't get what was anyway i guess the i guess the joke is that john's living in a mansion or something he's like gross a farm disgusting i've got people <laughs> to do that for me mccartney <laughs> Also, we'd be remiss not to mention what Yoko told Philip Norman in 2008. So, Norman finally points out that besides a few oblique lines about your lucky break in Too Many People, there was really nothing in that album that should ostensibly send John into apoplexy. Right. Right? And then, when talking to Yoko about this, she says that John's reaction reinforced her pre-existing suspicion that John's feelings for Paul were much deeper than John had admitted, even to her, or that the world at large had ever guessed. Mm. And then she says that John had wanted to pursue an affair with Paul, whatever that means, (laughs) um, but that Paul had balked, or maybe John just assumes that Paul wasn't down. That part isn't clear. Yeah. Um, but in any case, Yoko says, I knew there was something going on there from John's point of view, not from Paul's. And he was so angry at Paul, I couldn't help wondering what it was really about. Mm-hmm. So that right there is the best evidence that we have that this event, the writing, recording and releasing of How Do You Sleep, this vile song, was an emotional outburst based in her rejection heartbreak whatever and that it was actively encouraged co-written mm-hmm. and promoted by john's new wife who obviously is trying to widen the gulf between her husband and this man that he may or may not have been in love with at some point yeah and that fundamentally changes this song from the way that jean jackets and beetle bros discuss it Mm-hmm. Like, it's not some well-reasoned acerbic critique. It's a hysterical outburst from a fragile, rejected male. Yes. That is completely different. And, like, the narratives should adjust to that new information. I mean, it, you know, it seems pretty transparent even before Yoko gave that information. But now that, like, she's on record with it. Yeah. Spelling it out for everybody for what these guys couldn't figure out. But, like, <laughs> lots of people did figure it out. But none of the book writers did. Because mm-hmm. it makes um, them feel icky and uncomfortable. I guess. Or <laughs> Maybe. because, it, like, it's just a narrative that they don't like. So they yeah. pretend it doesn't exist or something. Right. None of what has happened has changed. Yoko just said it out loud. But it's like, didn't you already know that before Yoko said it? Mm-hmm. Like, it's obvious. It's yeah. pretty transparent. Right. But it's not said because it, well, I think, one, because it's like 
sort of homoerotic or whatever, which makes the Beatle book writers uncomfortable and makes them feel like they're going to get sued or something. Right. But, and also, I think it's just because they don't want to have to rethink things. That's a big part of it, too. I think a big part yeah. of it is just laziness. Like, they just don't want to have to go mm-hmm. back and re-examine everything, which you you yeah. kind of have to. Like, if you, if you grow up and you're realistic and you acknowledge that this is what's happening, then you've got to go back and sort of look at everything through a new lens. And no one is willing to do that because people are fucking lazy. Why would you do that if you could just write the same book that's been written 50 times? Which is what all the books are. Yeah. They're all just exactly the same. Um, Lewison's is just thicker. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what the other be- that's what the other Beatle book writer said. They're like, oh, huh? Lewison's is so thick. Yeah, it's so thick, but it's like, it's the same fucking bullshit. So, but seriously, I mean, like, is John really freaking out over your first mistake? You know, you took your lucky break and broke it in two? Or is he, is he freaking out over your last mistake? Yeah. Mm. Like, yeah. I don't want to get sidetracked into a whole um, deconstruction like, of Ram, because that would be another another episode. But, like, just for a second, what was the trigger that made him, like, you know, break the record player? I'm assuming it was your last, your last mistake, because that's where Paul pushes the knife in. Oh, yeah. And twists it a little for good measure. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy with my wife. It's like, why are you so upset that Paul's happy with his wife? Right? Aren't you happy with your wife, John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been what's, shouting what's about how happy you are with your wife for like three years. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. do you even care? Wouldn't right. you be like, I mean, the John that's portrayed in all these Beatle books would just read it and be like, oh, you find your love awake. Well, good for you, dude. Rock on. <laughs> Not like breaking the window or whatever, <laughs> like having a fucking meltdown. <laughs> So one of the big things we also need to address is that in 1971, John was not in a good mental state. Mm-mm. He and Yoko were at turns ranting to reporters on heroin, locking themselves in their room and filming themselves being awesome and beautiful together. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they were promoting themselves as a super artsy power couple. It's yeah. That's I a like their aesthetic. Capitalist society. I, I like it too. I, I like their fashion for that period, and I love that film that we mentioned—the Imagine film, the big music video. Um, and I think they come off as very cute, you know, in that film for the most part. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it is a performance. Yeah, that's just reality. And again, I'm not saying that they can't put out. I mean, whatever. In a certain sense, all public life is a performance. Shit, if you want to get real deep, all of life is a performance. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, of course. Whatever. I'm not saying that they aren't allowed to make art and put out an image that they that they choose. Of course, they are. They're allowed to. They're allowed to to tell their own life story. 
they can say whatever the fuck they want. If it wasn't for this song and it wasn't for the the aggressive way that they came at Paul and attacked Paul, then I wouldn't even be talking about this. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't give a shit. Right. I don't care. They can do whatever they want. Right. But like they chose to drag him into this and they chose to attack him. So we're going to have to talk about it. Yep. So anyway, after they finished Imagine, um, they lived at the St. Regis Hotel for a while, and then they got an apartment in Greenwich Village. And I just wanted to share this quote from Mei Peng, who was their assistant at the time. Since we don't have audio of this, uh, allow me to read it for you. After John finished Imagine, he and Yoko remained in New York City. They would get up anywhere between 10 and 4 p.m. When they awoke, they called for their medicine little white pills that they washed down with orange juice. When I asked him, John told me he was taking methadone. So John was a man of great energy and intensity, but when he didn't have a project to occupy his attention, he became lazy and can spend all day in bed watching television. John had an extremely busy mind. When he was idle, his mind would could run riot and his nervousness and paranoia would rise to the surface. It was at these moments especially that he turned to Yoko. Yoko was an extremist and was even more intense than John, taking any idea or comment of his to the limit. If, for example, he complained about any of his fellow Beatles, she would argue that that Beatle had always been an enemy, implying that John should never deal with that person again. Her extreme positions fascinated John and helped him take his mind off himself. But when she became self-involved and paranoid herself, her paranoia usually dealt with her career, her fame, and the fact that even though she had always been famous, everyone conspired to keep her from getting even more famous, he had no place to turn. His insecurity about his solo career, his childhood, his relationships with the other Beatles, the way the public perceived Yoko, overwhelmed him, and he became more and more involved with drugs. Soon, they were both locked into escalating paranoia. The world was against them. No one could be trusted. John had taken to his bed to relax, and bed became a cave in which to hide. I watched from a distance as John and Yoko transformed themselves into paranoid victims. In the short time I had known them, I had seen them play a number of roles. John had been a devoted, loving, supportive husband, a brilliantly capable musician, and then a paranoid victim. Yoko had been an aggressive conceptual artist, then a shy wife, and then she too had transformed herself into the role of a victim. They both obviously had many gears in their personalities, and they could switch back and forth at random. They were like actors who could take on any number of parts and play each one with so much conviction that they became trapped by the roles they chose to play. Here's another quote from Jerry Rubin, which appears to corroborate May's account. It's from a book called Come Together, John Lennon in His Time, written by John Wiener. Uh, Jerry spent more time at John and Yoko's Bank Street apartment than any of the others. Quote, this was John's Imagine period. He used to sing it at home a lot. I heard Imagine so many times, I thought my ears would fall off, unquote. Rubin saw a side of Lennon that he concealed from many others. Quote, this was a bitter period for John. Bitter, bitter, bitter. He was bitter about Paul McCartney. He ranted and raved about Paul. 
Ranted and raved about Alan Klein. Ranted and raved about being a celebrity. He hated it. Unquote. Ruben also talked about John's drug use. I liked John when he would get stoned on grass. He'd get real mellow and nice. On coke, he would get very aggressive. On heroin, very sad. I saw John and Yoko in their house shaking for five hours straight in a cold sweat getting off heroin. Unquote. The other thing that I want to die forever in a <laughs> million fires is the false equivalency of RAM and how do you sleep. Mm-hmm. They are not even remotely the same. No. Um, like no one is denying, including Paul, that Ram had some digs at John, but they were private. Um, most people would not pick them up. Yeah. Like they're not, they, you know, they're oblique. They're, they're for John's ears. They're not for the public's ears necessarily. They're not as deeply personal. They're not a, like an attack on John as a person or well, John they're, as they're a... Of, yeah, ahead. they're of like a different nature. Yeah. I think by the time of Ram, since Paul has already like, he's gone through his mourning period. He's gone through acceptance. Like, okay, this is done. Yeah. And then John comes out with Lennon Remembers trashing him all over the place and comes out with Plastic right. Band and all that shit. I think by the time Paul gets around to recording Ram, he's like, okay, now I'm kind of angry. Right? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which is justifiable. Yes. Right. Like he's, he's gone through, like he's done with his grieving period. Like he's, he's already passed all that now. Now I'm, now you're just pissing me off. If anything, it's kind of like bratty, like, uh-huh, you know, like, <laughs> we're having a great time. Uh, the way I think about it is, like, if you were to put it in modern terms, it, it's like Paul sending a passive-aggressive tweet about, like, you know, like, posting a picture of him and Linda, like, looking all <laughs> smoochy or something, <laughs> and being like, I'm finally with someone who appreciates me for what I am. You know, or like, <laughs> finally with someone who meets all my needs or something. It's just kind of vaguely passive-aggressive that doesn't really have anything to do with John. But John hears it and gets upset. And then, in response, John posts revenge porn. Whoa! Hold yeah. up! Right. Nothing gives you the right to do that. Just because right. he said something that, like, you took offense to... That nobody else even took as being about you, by the way. And, like, I'm not questioning Paul's, you know, motives or whatever. Saying, like, well, Paul didn't mean that. I mean, I'm sure he did. You know, like, I'm sure he was yeah, trying to deal, John. Oh, he was. I mean, but I'm kind of more like, I'm from the school of thought. Like, well, good. Because John deserved it at that point. Because he was trash-talking him publicly. And Paul oh hadn't God. resorted to that. I've heard Beetle Bros like, well, Paul started it with Ram. It's like, Paul started mm. it with Ram? Did you just forget John Lennon's best album, Plastic Auto Band? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you conveniently dismissing that entire album? Because, no, he drags Paul and their entire relationship through the mud, like, trashes it and says, like, you're dead to me. And, like, I know it was all a lie. You know, and then, like, just goes yeah. off on him. Ed Lennon remembers. <sighs> I'm not, again, I'm not disputing that that Paul was thinking about John during Ram. And that, oh, yeah. And that, and that parts of that come through in that record. I mean, they do. Like, he is spiking the football or whatever. 
you know, things are kind of going his way. And he's, like, happy with his wife. And, like, even though he's taking a beating in the press, he's like, I don't give a shit. Because I have this family I love. I'm fucking on fire. I'm doing my own shit. And no one's fucking giving me hell about it. Yeah. I don't, I don't have anybody fucking fighting me in the studio. People are actually trying to help me. And are, like, mm-hmm. cooperating. I don't have to fucking right. battle a bunch of dudes. All of who want to be the biggest dick in the room or whatever. It's just like, I'm just living my life, doing my music. Like, there is that bit of attitude to it, for sure. But also, I just want to point out... I think makes it appealing. Well, that's how you do it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's like the classy way to do it. I mean, living well is the best revenge, right? Amen. (laughs) Is the best revenge recording, like... A ridiculous tantrum bully song? Nope. You don't have to do that. You don't have to, like, create a scene, you know, and, like, trash the bar to prove to everybody how over your ex you are. Right. You just have to sort of, like, gloat a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which is what Paul did. Right. Just hold your like, head up you're high really and really so happy. My point is that, like, yes, Paul was, he was sort of gloaty. But John was also incredibly paranoid and self-centered. So, you know, it's like that, like, dear boy. Oh, gosh. Which didn't, didn't John think that that was about him? I think too? he thought every song on that album was about him. He thought yeah, Backseat so of too. My Car was about him. He thought Dear Boy was about <laughs> him. He thought Three Legs was about him. I could just name off every track. Well, and I also, like I want to put out, like, John also thinks that Hey Jude is about him. Uh, yeah. And he told Bob Gruen that fucking Silly Love Songs was about... Like, the part in <laughs> Silly Love Songs where Paul sings I Love You, like that chorus. Yeah, he thought the, the I Love Yous were made for him. Now, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, whatever. Maybe it is. You know, right. it's like, I'm not in Paul's head. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's possible that there were, John had some reason to think that or whatever. But, like, my point is that... John thinks about Paul a lot. <laughs> and he is paranoid. He's going to read into it all kinds of digs that may or may not be there. Yep. So for writers to just take John at his word, I think, is a little careless. What I hate about this whole thing is it builds John and Yoko up to be these counterculture heroes when Paul was the one who was actually involved in 60s counterculture. Mm-hmm. He was the one who was at the forefront of the Beatles' foray into this experimental and artistic approach to their music. Yeah. He's the one who, by all accounts, ended up living a way more counterculture existence than John ever did. <laughs> like, Amen. Who's the one who lived on a farm and grew fucking vegetables and was present at his wife's natural childbirths, running around naked at home, (laughs) smoking tons of pot, making art and music at home, painted a fucking psychedelic tour bus, and took it on the road with, like, a band he assembled and all his kids. Paul's mythology is that he's a square, which at the time was a huge offense. You know, like, he wasn't a true artist, right? (laughs) Right. And I, I don't know how I don't even know what the justification for that is. How in what way is he not a true artist? Well, there is no justification, but people believe the song. And I feel like How Do You Sleep was just kind of like John and Yoko's fight song in their smear campaign going forward. 
Yeah. And also, John had a lot of fighters in his camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, um, I never challenged him. Melody Maker. Yeah, like, they all mm-hmm. just printed what he said. Nobody cared enough to, like, push back or whatever. <clears throat> He's getting friendly with the, the New York underground scene and whatever. Yeah. So he, he has a lot of, like, counterculture cred. So it was, I think it was just sort of easy for him to say, well, I'm whatever I am, Paul is not. It, he turned it into a black and white thing, but it's stupid. You know, it's like because the world's not black and white. No, nope. but but a lot of people don't see nuance and a lot of, you know, plus, I think at that time, the youth of that generation was very us or them. Oh, yeah. It was super divisive. If right. you showed any sort of empathy towards the older generation, you are not to be trusted for one. Right. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That youth culture was extremely polarized. Yeah. And of course, you know, I think the intentions were were good by and large. It's like he was trying to leverage his celebrity for good. Yeah. He had the potential to leverage it for good and he showed that, but then he chose to weaponize his counterculture cred against his partner, his yes. best friend. And well put. that yeah, that's not okay. That's something to be looked at objectively and called for what it is. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy... <laughs> you know, again, I don't want to get sidetracked into a whole thing about, like, whether or not John and Yoko's politics were sincere or whatever. Yeah. that's not my concern, and I don't really care. But, like, this is a guy who wrote Working Class Hero, and then he and Yoko... We're like strutting around in furs on a seventy-two <laughs> acre mansion. I mean, without with no without a hint of irony. Right. And like, what the fuck am I in Bizarro Land with the balls on him? How did he write <laughs> that song? Like, and take himself seriously, and then move into Tiddenhurst Park. And like, it's not like he was hiding there. I mean, they made a fucking big movie about it. Yeah. Oh my god. As somebody who is not a baby boomer, sometimes I look back from a distance and I'm like, were you all on fucking drugs? Because I don't <laughs> understand. How did he pull this off? When I look at Ram and Imagine, again, it's like I feel like I'm hearing something different than mm-hmm. whatever people were hearing in 1971. Maybe it was the brown acid or whatever, but like <laughs> when I discovered Ram in the early 90s, I was like, this is fucking amazing. It's yeah. fresh and like beautiful and like could fit in with what I'm listening to now. Whereas Imagine by comparison sounds completely dated. Yeah. I mean like, you know, pleasantly so because I like that sort of 70s AM sound, you know, but like, yeah. There's nothing musically experimental or different about it whatsoever. Right. There just isn't. I mean, it's just like a collection of good songs, which I like good songs, you know. But it's like that's John's most commercial album. And again, I have Mm -hmm. no problem with like commercial music at all. Like I love commercial music. And I also love experimental, weird, postmodern fucking art bullshit music too like i like all kinds of shit but i'm just saying like the narrative that somehow like (laughs) that john is somehow the musically experimental beetle i don't understand did he just go around paying everybody to say this shit like are all the beatles authors on his payroll (laughs) or something they're on yoko's payroll i guess because i do not i don't even know where you come up with that when i listened to ram i was blown away i was like early yeah. middle school kind of age mm-hmm. when the anthology dropped. Um, 
everything I read about McCartney was like, oh, gross, you know, like, you don't want to listen to him. He was so <laughs> yeah. lame. And Me like, too. I honestly think that it's just a matter of like, people didn't get it. Yeah, I don't think and they the, were ready. They weren't. And like the baby boomer. Here's the thing. Do you remember when it's like uh, sometime around like 2000, all of a sudden Ram became cool? Mm-hmm. It was literally like 30 the, years later. Yeah. That people were like, oh, holy shit, we just realized that this album was amazing and ahead of its time and yeah. brilliant. And like now, all of a sudden, now it's the best post Beatles album. And it's like, you fucking worthless pricks. <laughs> you, you, like, go correct your fucking narrative because you bashed. You bashed him for 30 years. Every Beatle book I read when I was a kid said that Paul's music was just stupid and mm-hmm. garbage. And, like, when you listen to those albums, it's very clear who the musical innovator of the Beatles is. Oh, my God, yes. And, I mean, John is a very, very strong songwriter. I'm not taking that away from him. And I yeah. feel like Imagine is a good album full with a lot of strong songs. The narrative doesn't accurately reflect what their overall strengths are you can't just credit john with being musically experimental because he got with yoko john coasts on a lot of yoko's experimentation Mm -hmm. it's her it's not john yeah and And he's kind of like riding on her coattails and taking all the credit for it he doesn't need to get credit for everything and then the beetle books are just like they give they give no credit to yoko and they give no credit to paul Mm-hmm. But it's like those two are the ones who are being experimental and weird. No. John's just doing his thing, which is which is great. You know, he's great at what he does. Yeah. But like, stop just crediting him with like everything on the planet. Are you interested in like the real narrative? Are you interested in just promoting the same narrative because you don't want to change your opinion? Goldman, Lewison. You're all, you're just their fucking bitch boys saying the same shit over and over again. Like, have a fucking original thought, take some things apart, and fucking, like, admit sometimes that you don't know everything. Alright, John was asked about this song so many times throughout the rest of his life. We have multiple Mm -hmm. interviews that we could quote from, but we chose this one from 1975 because... To me, this is where John sounds the healthiest and most reasonable. You must be pleased with what Paul's doing now, John. I'm pleased running. that everybody's doing well, you know. Yeah. I'm more pleased that Ringo's doing well, you know, that yeah. he's got himself a good niche. Because I knew Paul would be all right. What the hell? I'm worried about him. You know, I know, know he's going to be all right. In retrospect now, do you regret how do you sleep? No. Somebody said the other day, it's about me. You know, I regret that it, it, it was so... Not the song is. I, two things I regretted. One that there was so much talk about Paul. I mean, they missed the song. It was a good track, and I should have, you know, kept my mouth shut. Not on the song. It could have been about anybody, you know. I mean, and when when you look at them back, you know, Dylan said it about his stuff that he found out most of it's about him. I wrote a sort of son of how do you sleep on on walls and bridges. Uh, I can't remember the name. Steel and glass, which I thought was about a few people, but then I'm realised, no, it's me again. So it's not about Paul, it's about me, you know, I'm really attacking myself. But I regret the association, but eh, what a regret, you know, I mean, he, he lived through it. The real, the only thing that matters is how he and I feel about those yeah, things, yeah. and not what about, you know, the, the writer or the commentator thinks about it. You know, him and me are okay, so I don't care what they say about that. I think John, by that point, had realized a few things, namely that it would have been cooler to not make it so pointedly about Paul. 
Like if it had been a little less literal, maybe it might have had mm-hmm. more durability as a piece of art rather than just a personal attack against this famous partner of his. Yeah. And also, he realized that the song itself was less about Paul than it was about John's own insecurities, jealousies, and fears. Do you think he regretted it? I think he tried not to regret anything. So, you know, I think... Which, to an extent, is healthy, right? Yeah, like you can't really go back and undo things. That's exactly right. You can't go back and undo things. You can only move forward, and regret is pretty much useless. I mean, it's useful to learn things, you know, learn from your mistakes and to move forward. And sometimes you can figure out what you would have done differently, but you can't do them differently because it's already done. Yeah. So in that respect no i don't think he really regretted anything yeah you know i think he just kind of chalked it up to his life and you know i am what i am you know (laughs) i can't help but be me but it's like that kind of you know on one level that speaks to immense immaturity and irresponsibility like he you know, his level of accountability is very, very low. Oh, yeah. He's, and very childish. It's kind of like early teenage yeah. level of maturity, I would say. It, yeah. He's really emotionally stunted in a lot of ways. It seems to, like, my impression was that he was almost surprised that it this action had a consequence. And that he had to answer questions about this song for the rest of his life. And it got bigger yes. than him. And it got out of control. And he couldn't walk it back, even if he wanted to, right? Like, at a certain point, the press took it to a certain level, and it just it kind of grew yeah. into this legendary thing, and he couldn't control it. And I don't think he was expecting that, because I don't yeah. think he thought ahead. Yes. So that was the other thing I was going to say, is that on one hand... It's easy to get sort of angry and impatient with him because he's not a child. He's Mm -hmm. a grown man and he should be made to take responsibility for his actions. You know, it's like, why not? It's it's maddening how indulged he is. Mm -hmm. That gets tiresome, you know, and at a certain point, like I respect if people are just like, fuck that. I don't care. This guy's a piece of shit. I don't you know, I don't even know why you like him. I kind of can't really defend that. I'm like, I get that. I get where you're coming from. But, like, I do think that there kind of is an element within him. Again, I'm not a doctor. I never met this guy. But it does seem like some of it is kind of out of his control. Yeah. Like, he does, like, he loses control. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he doesn't, and the other thing that might be, weird for him like when you were talking about how he seemed kind of surprised like he shouldn't have been surprised but he was yeah the other thing is that all the people around him his security system his you know whatever his support system who he literally says in that lennon remembers interview he literally says it's yoko phil specter and alan klein and they love me hmm like, yep. he actually said that. Yeah. It, like, not as a joke. Like, no, that seriously. Was, he was super serious. It was legit. Yes. So all three of these people 
were the ones who said, yeah, John, do it, do it, do it. They were egging him on the entire time. So it's like there (laughs) there is such a thing as like inciting violence. Mm -hmm. That is an actual crime that you can be accused of. So I'm saying these three people were literally inciting him all the way along the lines. And they are at this point in his life, his only stop gaps. Yeah. You know, in terms of like his behavior and they're all telling him it's okay. It'll be mm. fine. It'll mm. be good. Not a single one of them said pump the brakes, homie. You right. Know, this might not be a great idea. Yeah. Slow down. So I can kind of see how he would come out of that daze and be like, what the fuck? And also the thing is that Paul, <sighs> Paul knows him better than anyone on the planet has known him since he was a boy, knows how he operates, knows that he's vulnerable to people fucking with his head and, you know, yeah, con men mm-hmm. and, like, vulnerable to, like, people he thinks are saviors. And yeah, he's easy prey, and Paul knows that about him. He's easily manipulated. When you look at in the grand scheme of things, like, why did Paul forgive him? You know, you can you can understand it better when you take all of that into account. If somebody didn't, mixed in with it all, genuinely love somebody, genuinely care about their feelings about them, they wouldn't go to the lengths in whatever strange way that John did to lash back at you. They wouldn't hold a pig on the cover to parody you holding a sheep and ram. They wouldn't, you know, call your stuff rubbish or write how do you sleep. They wouldn't do it. No, I think that's right. You know, I think that's right. I think he was, he was very hurt. Uh, there were people turning him against me. Uh, it was his way of defending himself. Um, you know, he was, he was a jealous guy. 